The scripture reader this reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 and 8 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father in heaven, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're spending four weeks looking at three stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15. Uh, Luke 15 is a chapter, there are four books in the New Testament that tell us about uh, Jesus' life. And in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories that are meant to help us really answer one question. What is the heart of God? What does God's heart look like? What makes God's heart beat faster? What does he love? What we're finding is that each of these stories, they're called parables sometimes, uh, has a twist. They don't end the way that we expect them to end. They're, um, in some way, you might call them a wrecking ball to our misconceptions about God. So last week, I, we started, and I kind of hedged one of my statements, and then in the middle of the sermon last week, I had this realization, and so I want to tweak it just a little bit. Because we asked last week, who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to the, the so-called sinners around him? And if you're, uh, if you're following in your Bible, the word sinners might be in quotes. That's kind of an interpretive help to help us see that term is used almost sarcastically by Luke. Is Jesus talking to the so-called sinners around him, or is he talking to the self-righteous, the religious Pharisees who are criticizing him? And it it occurred to me right in the middle of of the sermon last week how often the word sinner appears, four times in ten verses. Did you notice this? I didn't until just last week. Look at this, verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 7, if you're following in the bulletin, this isn't printed, but it's it's in your Bible if you're following there. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, underline that, who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And then here in verse 10, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Pharisees, the religious people, the very self-righteous religious people, were using the word sinner pejoratively. They were using it as a knockdown insult. He eats with sinners. And Jesus takes that word and reappropriates it and basically says, yeah. Yeah, in fact, the heart of God is drawn not to the righteous people who don't need God, but to the sinners, to the people who most need God. 
Now, of course, Jesus knows that these so-called sinners, and we're putting that word in quotes for good reason, he knows they're listening and he wants them to hear what's going on, and and it's not wrong to draw out some of those implications. We're going to do more of that today. But I actually think Jesus might be speaking more pointedly to the Pharisees here than he is to the so-called sinners. We'll see that most clearly in two weeks. We're going to spend the next next week and the week after that looking at the story of the lost son. And in two weeks, we'll focus on the older brother's perspective, and we'll see this very, very, very clearly. But here, this morning, we have a simple story. A woman had a coin, had ten coins. She lost one of them, and she found it. Very simple story. And Jesus is brilliant. He's able to, to... mind so much meaning out of such a simple story. This morning, we're looking for the heartbeat of God. And here's what we see. We see God loves to lift up the broken down. He loves to lift up the broken down. Secondly, we'll see that God loves to rejoice over us. He loves to rejoice over us. And thirdly, we'll see that God loves to change us. He loves to change us. And each of those three corrects a misconception that we commonly have about God. So let's look at those. There's a a commentator. I found out, I couldn't believe this, a whole commentary just on Luke 15. And I read, read the whole thing for you, just so you would know what's going on and so I would know what was going on. So Kenneth Bailey, he's a, he's a scholar. He studies especially first century cultures in ancient Jewish cultures. And so he's writing this basically to help us to see how would a first century Jew who was listening to Jesus when he said what he said have heard his words. Because cultures are different and so we understand and hear different things. And he points out that Jesus is dramatically elevating in this little, these three verses, verses 8 through 10, he's dramatically elevating the status of women in some radically countercultural ways that we might miss today. Ways that would have been shocking to a first century listener. Because other ancient cultures, a lot of other ancient cultures, and Judaism was no exception, had very low views of women. Uh, here's just a, a couple of samples. There's a Jewish writer named Ben Sirah. Uh, he wrote about 200 years before Jesus. This is, quote, the birth of a daughter is a loss, end quote. Now, that's, that's wrong, okay? <laughs> and I know I'm biased, but that's wrong. Let's just be clear about that. But that was one of the prevailing assumptions. We also have evidence several years after Jesus that Jewish rabbis and teachers would pray publicly and thank God that they had been born male and not female. It's outrageous, right? But these are just cultural uh, assumptions of the time. And it's into that culture that Jesus says... Because the metaphor, I think the metaphor is pretty clear, right? He's saying, just as a woman seeks the coin, the lost coin, uh, God seeks lost people. What's he saying? I am just like that woman. He's not saying God is a woman, but he sure is coming close. He's flying his kite in a cultural lightning storm right here by comparing God directly to a woman. Nobody else in Jesus' day would have dared do this. But it stops there. Or it doesn't stop there. It gets better. Because he's not just saying that he's like this woman, but notice her role in the story that Jesus tells. She's not just an outlier. She's at the center of the story. She's managing money. If you remember, it says she has 10 silver coins. 
Uh, so the translation, it's a translation for a Greek word, drachma, which is a unit of money. It was basically equal to a day's wages. So she had 10 days wages. By the way, any of you carry 10 days, uh, 10 days, two weeks, half a month? Anybody else carry half a month's worth of cash in your wallet? I don't. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. Half of, she's responsible for half a month's cash. Now, in ancient cultures, again, women, if they lived alone, they probably were pretty poor, which means that this woman, if she has this kind of money, probably isn't alone. She's probably married, which means her husband has earned the money and is entrusting her to take care of all of their family's finances and details and wealth. Again, very unexpected in such a time. And she loses some of the money and finds it. She takes the initiative. She does whatever it takes. Last week, when we told the story of the lost sheep, the focus was a little more on people who are lost because of their own decisions. It was, it was the, the so-called tax collectors and sinners, people who are, are far from God because of what they've done. They've made bad decisions. But in this story, Jesus turns the table and he adds another dimension And he says, I care not only about people who are far from me or who feel far from me because they've made bad decisions. I care about people who feel far from me because of who they are. Because even when the rest of the world around you devalues you, I say you are valuable and needed and important. He elevates those who otherwise are broken down. He says, you who feel like you're on the lowest, lowest level of the the social totem pole. I'm going to put you at the top. And if this sounds a little bit uh, odd, just remember, he says the same thing elsewhere. First shall be last, and the last shall be first. This is very common for Jesus to do. He rejoices in it. He rejoices. He delights. He loves to take our misconceptions about status and where we belong, especially people who might think that they don't belong very high on that totem pole and say, no, come up top. He rejoices over us. He delights in building up the broken down. Secondly, he delights in just rejoicing, in joy. Many of us don't when you think about God, is the first word you think about joy? Do you just instantly correlate? When you think God, do you think joy? Probably not. But notice the woman's response. This gives us a clue, again, into the heart of God. By the way, this is the exact same response as the shepherd who finds the lost sheep that we looked at last week. When she finds the sheep, verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. She's, you see, she's throwing a party. I lost a coin. I found it. And she calls her friends and neighbors and says, come over and let's throw a party together because I found this lost coin. Now, you and I might think that, was that really necessary? We really, like, is that a little forward? Maybe that's a little bit indulgent. I had a friend, I had a friend in college who loved to bake cakes. And she would bake a cake for anything. She once baked a cake to celebrate the fact that her car rolled over 200,000 miles on the odometer. And she threw a party. That's so over the top and unnecessary, right? A little silly. Who would you rather be around? The person who bakes a cake because her car rolled over 200,000 miles or the person who says that's silly? Don't do that. 
is a party. And what's the spirit behind a party? It's joy. It's joy. The woman, she didn't have to throw a party after finding the coin. In fact, it's probable that she had to spend money to throw the party. It could be that she spent the whole value of the coin she just found to throw the party, celebrating the coin that she had lost and now has found, and lost it after all anyway. What's the use? If all you're doing is counting nuts and bolts, counting dollars and cents, it doesn't make sense. But if you realize that God is a God of joy, who loves to celebrate and rejoice over you, it transforms us. In her marrow, she is stuffed with joy. She can't keep it down. Do you know that in his marrow, like at the very core of his being, God our Father is stuffed with joy. With joy. God our Father is stuffed, bursting with joy. Now this can be difficult for some of us to square with, especially some of us if you, had, if you have, had or have a father who's difficult to please, this is, it's not fair, but this is going to be hard. You know, the, the dad who's angry when you mess up, who's disappointed when you get it wrong, and the best you can hope for is to get it right. And when you get it right, there's not really a sense of delight, but at least you avoided the anger or the disappointment. So, like, you're, you're, constantly, you're never really living in a positive. It's just always a negative or at best a neutral. It's such a shame. Because by and large, we get our impressions of who God is from our fathers and our mothers, and I'm not sure what exactly the connection is, but certainly from our parents. The heart of a father, of an earthly father, who's difficult or impossible to please, is really violently opposed to the heart of God our Father. Which means that people who have grown up with a father who's difficult to please live their whole lives not just with a misconception of God, but also just constantly trying to please dad. Even if dad's no longer with you, you're still trying to please him. It's, it's a form of imprisonment or slavery. Listen to me closely here. God our father is not difficult to please. He's the father who, here's what he's like, he's the father who when his kid brings him a painting that objectively is bad, he delights in it. You know the painting or the drawing where like, the, the, hey, dad, I drew our family, and all of their legs are growing out of their head, and their arms are sticking out from where their ears should be? It will never win an award, and what does he do? He gets down on his knees at eye level with his kid, and he says, I love it. Tell me all about it. And they talk, and half of it doesn't make sense, and he asks questions and draws out their imagination. He delights in that not, frankly, not very good painting or drawing. Why? Because he delights in his kids. Because he delights in his son or his daughter. Because he delights in you. In Zephaniah 3, Old Testament prophet, the Old Testament prophets are known for having a stern tone. What does Zephaniah say in chapter 3? The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. 
He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine? It's just like, can you imagine God rejoicing over you with singing? Is that your impression of God? Because that is who God is. We'll look more about this next week, by the way, when we look at the father's response when his lost son comes home. He's not a difficult-to-please father. He's filled with joy and with delight. And by the way, just a quick side note, for those of us who are parents, like this is very convicting because the way we parent our children has a direct bearing on how our children will see God. Let's just press this theme a little bit farther before we move on. If we continue with this metaphor of an earthly father who's difficult to please, they see uh, when we do something wrong, we sin, it makes them angry or disappointed. Remember that feeling, by the way? It was, it was worth, you'd rather, <laughs> we'd probably all rather dad be mad at us than disappointed in us. That was just the worst. You know what's going on there? So if I tell my kid, I'm really disappointed in you, I've said, I've said actually a destructive thing on two different, at least two levels, maybe there's more, but at least two levels that I can count. First, I've made it all about me. I'm really disappointed in you. I'm really disappointed in you. You didn't please me. You didn't live up to my expectations. Very little regard for the child there. And secondly, I've invalidated not just what she's done, but who she is. That I'm disappointed in you and who you are. It's incredibly destructive. And we wonder why a good therapist has such a long wait list. (laughs) God's not like that. Now let's be clear, our sin does grieve him. But why? We're talking about heartbeats here. What is the heartbeat behind the grief that God feels because of our sin? Not so much just because we've offended him or made him mad or displeased him. No, it's because he sees that we're destroying ourselves. And when we destroy ourselves, we erode away our relationship with him. He delights in you. He delights in his relationship with you. And sin is what drives a wedge between us and him and severs that relationship. That's the worst thing he could imagine. It's not just a defense mechanism to keep himself from being hurt by sin. No, it's much deeper. It's an arrow to his heart because he knows that our sin is what kills us. And a good father only wants what's best for their kids. In other words, when when a father sees his kids killing themselves, it kills the father. Do you see the difference between a heart that rejoices in his kids and is grieved over their sin and, and one who's just kind of disappointed in a detached way and says, well, you make the bed you lie in. This is a God who tenderly, even in our sins, since you're destroying yourself, you're running farther and farther from me. And because I love you so much, I hate it. You see the difference? As we saw last week, our sin doesn't drive God further and further away. It draws him closer. And last week, we talked about the example of a father whose child is very sick. And a father whose child is very sick, that sickness doesn't drive dad further away. It draws him closer because he loves his kid. He hates the sickness, but he loves his kid. Why? 
because he wants to see us full and whole and healthy. He wants to transform us. We've seen that God loves to lift up the broken down. He loves to rejoice. And lastly, he loves to change us and transform us. Look at what Jesus says is the goal of the woman uh, of this whole story. Verse 10 again. He says, in the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing over the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He says the same thing last week, by the way, in verse 7. Who repents. What is repentance? It's kind of a big Bible word. Nobody ever uses it except in churches, basically. It just means to change. It's a translation of both a Greek and a Hebrew word, and the Greek and the Hebrew both mean to change, to make a U-turn. It means I was walking that way, and I literally turned, and now I'm walking this way. Now, most of us, I would, I would guess, I might even dare say all of us, want to change something, right? What, what do you wish was different about you? I wish I were more patient, especially with that one person who just knows how to push my buttons. And it's like, it's Pavlovian. I can't, like, I know what they're doing. I can't help my response. I wish I were more disciplined. I wish, I don't know, I wish I could give people the benefit of the doubt instead of jumping to conclusions and always assuming the worst. Like, whatever it is, we all have things that we wish were different about us. How do you change those things? The two most common ways that you'll see in the world uh, don't work. <laughs> one is external, one is internal. The external is external pressure from another person. Somebody says, this is the disappointed dad again, right? You need to change. And it doesn't, maybe it works in the short run, but it, all it does is guilt us. It doesn't, it doesn't last. The internal pressure works a little bit better. Okay, I think I need to change for this reason, but, but it doesn't work. It's why I bet none of you have kept your New Year's resolutions from just... What was it, seven months ago? Anybody, by the way? Anybody kept their New Year's resolution so far? See? No, okay, one. Rick. (laughs) One out of 50. There's one way to really change, to truly change. It's not external pressure. It's not internal pressure. It's grace. It's receiving grace from somebody else, in this case, namely from God our Father. What does a coin do? Think about it just, okay, think about, I haven't really talked about the metaphor, I'm kind of assuming it, it's pretty basic. Woman loses a coin, she sacrifices greatly to find the coin. God loses a person and he sacrifices greatly to find the person. I assume we're on the same page on that. What does a coin do to be found? Wave its arms, get up, find, get, put itself in a place where it's a little, no, it can't, nothing. Absolutely nothing. It just, it, it's a complete passive activity. It is found. The woman finds the coin. God finds us. It's pure grace. The more effort involves, it involves from you, the less it's actually grace. And when you begin to understand the love and the grace and the compassion of God, it will inevitably change you. There's no other option. Grace changes us. And if you're not changing, and if you're not transformed, I submit to you that it's not grace you're drawing from. You're drinking from some other cup. 
You don't change by closing your eyes and wiggling your nose and just trying really, really, really hard to be a better person. It doesn't work. We've all tried it. It works maybe in the short run for a day or two, but it doesn't last. You know what, you know what changes somebody? And someone who says, I don't condemn you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. I've used this before. I'll say it again. One of my favorite pastors uses a point. He says, we all want to be fully known and fully loved. So to be fully loved without being fully known is very shallow. So I, I, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I don't really know who you are. Okay, fine, that's nice, but it's just surface-level affection. But to be fully known and not fully loved, the opposite, that's our deepest fear. Because that's somebody saying, I saw into that dark corner of your life, and I want nothing to do with that. But Jesus Christ fully knows you and fully loves you. He knows every corner, every dark, even even that closet that you don't even dare open because you're afraid of what you'll find. Like, he knows it. And he says, I love you. And just like the woman went through great expense to find the coin, we didn't talk a lot about... It took her time to find it. We don't know how long. It was expensive. She had to light a lamp. Did you notice that? Lamp oil is very expensive. So she had to pay money, in a sense, just to find the coin. And then she paid more money to throw the party. And at great expense, Jesus found us. It cost him everything, his life. See, when you see somebody who says, I I know every dark corner. I know every little part of your false self. And I love you so much that I will put my life down as a guarantee. That will change you. Nothing else really will. Nothing else really will. Grace changes us. It transforms us. When you see that there is one who will go to great expense, in fact, there is no expense he will not spare to find you, to give you life, to transform, it, it just will change us just does. It's not about trying harder. It's about receiving the grace of Christ. God is not some dour, difficult-to-please Father, but he delights in his children and in you. We're about to move to a table and to celebrate the grace of God in our lives. Let me just point out one point, one last thing. That in an inevitable response to joy, the joy of the Father is a party. Rejoice with me, the woman says. She calls her friends and her family. Rejoice with me. Which is a party. And every good party involves food and drink. Right? You don't, like, you can't, it's not possible to have, can you have a party without, that would be a lame party. It's like that scene, you know, uh, Monty Python Python and the Holy Grail, and there was much rejoicing. Yay! Like that. No, this is a party. We're about to celebrate the Lord's table, when we eat, how, we don't know how this works, but Jesus says when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're eating my flesh and drinking my blood. This, this is solemn, but this is a celebration too. Jesus says it's a celebration, and as you celebrate, you are sharing in my joy. Receive the grace of Christ. Feel his, his tenderness his delight in you. Feel the fact that he's crazy about you. Let it transform you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, transform us. 
transform our misunderstandings about you, our misconceptions, where we think that you're difficult to please, would you correct us? Where we think that you are sour and stern, would you you transform our perceptions so that in all things we might know you and in all things we might make you known? We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.